Hi, this is Pastor John welcoming you to our broadcast. Here's a question that's sure to cause some debate. Does God still heal? Well, I believe he does. Perhaps you'll agree with me as we look into the story of Naaman, a Syrian commander during the time of Elisha. I hope you'll stick around to hear an important message right after the broadcast. Meanwhile, let's look in on our friend Naaman. Paper Bible? I'd like you to turn to... Where are we? Second Kings, chapter 5. We're being verses 1 through 19. Now, I, I sent out a note, and I said, let's wear a Hawaiian shirt. You guys have done a great job. I went on Amazon and looked for loud Hawaiian shirts. I guess they Kelly, Kelly, Kelly said, are you really going to wear that? I said, yeah, but I got one for you too. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. Here's a question for you. Does God still heal? Now that, that will that will start debates in theological circles, we'll go back and forth and cessationists and non-cessationists and everything, but I think I think we came across the answer. I think David said yes. We can just go home. <laughs> and it's in our passage today. Now, first and second kings, understand this. First and second kings repeatedly demonstrate the sovereignty of God over all nations. And I think, I think, I think we need to think about sovereignty because it, it's a tough subject for us to absorb. And it, it, the truth of the matter is, either God is totally sovereign over all of his creation or he's not sovereign at all. Uh, so, again, it's a hard concept for us to, to uh, process but God is sovereign, and, and he's over, over all nations, not just, not just Israel, not just his people, not just his church. The Lord rules over all nations, putting kings on their thrones, listen carefully, putting kings on their thrones and removing them. Now we see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God puts kings in place. Every time I bring that up, somebody goes, oh, but we don't have a king, we have a president. God does this. Now, this doesn't mean that all nations have God's favor, that all nations experience his grace. It just demonstrates that God is Lord over all creation, not just those that are his. And as we're going to see in our story today, as we talk about Naaman, God does it all for his glory and for the good of his children. We're going to see that in today's passage. So this sermon is called Naaman, and the actual pronunciation of his name is Naaman. But we're going to say Naaman because we like to English everything. So it's Naaman. This is number 12 in our series lessons for today from the Old Testament. So Naaman's tale comes to us in four vignettes, four little scenarios. We see Naaman's disease in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 5a. Uh, we see the king's dilemma 
in 2 Kings 5, 5b through 7, we see Elisha's decision in verses 8 through 12, and then we see Naaman's deliverance in verses 13 through 19. So let's take a look at Naaman's disease. Now, Naaman, now understand, you know, we, we, we love to look at names in the Bible, amen? It means pleasant. So pleasant is commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, this is a bunch of mean dudes. And, and so Pleasant is in charge of them. Just think about that for a second. The king is Ben-Hadad. Syria is also known as Aram, Aramites. Uh, throughout their history, Israel and Aram have been at odds with each other. Uh, they haven't really gone to war yet. But at this point, Syria is a juggernaut just rolling over the nations around them. And Israel's kind of in their sights. So the Naaman was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. We need to think about that for a second. God used Naaman, a pagan, to gain victory over Israel. Now, how does that work? I just want you to think about this for a second because... Our nation is at a pivotal moment. We had, we had cause to celebrate yesterday. Amen? Victory for the sanctity of life. I love that. Don't think for a minute that God was not sovereign over the enactment of Roe versus Wade. Yes, he's sovereign over its repeal. But we need to understand that God's doing something. and He's not trying to give us political acumen and victory. So my caution to us as a church is to be careful how we react. React in a godly fashion. I think we give praise and glory to God. This is a wonderful thing. But it comes at a time when our nation is so severely divided, maybe more so than ever in its history. There are already people out in the streets protesting this half a step away from violence. And if you don't think it's going to happen, just watch. Just watch. How do we react? We can either throw fuel on the fire or we can say, you know, God was sovereign when this went into place. He's sovereign and going out of place. Let's serve him. Let's be the messengers of the gospel that Jimmy talked about in his catechism. So it's our opportunity to give God glory. It's all our opportunity to come together and praise and worship him for what he's doing. But it's not our opportunity to gloat. Now, I, I haven't seen anybody at WBF doing it, but I've seen others. Oh, they're getting what they deserve. Oh, you just wait. Then everything's going to turn around. So God is sovereign. He was sovereign in 1972, and he's sovereign today in 2022. So let's observe that sovereignty. Let's give him thanks because God's in control. And he uses people for his own purposes and his own glory. That's what he's going to do with Naaman. Naaman was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, a leprosy back then could have been any number of maladies, uh, the skin conditions. Whatever it was, it was serious. It was highly contagious, and there was no cure for it. So Naaman is probably not real far along in his leprosy because he's still functioning. And he has been isolated from other people, but it's coming. 
So verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Now, the King James Version, I like their version here, says that she waited on Naaman's wife. And I want you to see the contrast that the author of Second Kings is trying to set up for us. We have this great man. We have this little girl. Naaman is a conquering Armenian, and she's a vanquished Israelite. Naaman is a, a commander. She is a servant. Uh, Naaman is a warrior in high favor. And she's a small girl of such little significance that we don't even know her name. Just a little girl standing in the background. She said to her mistress, verse 3, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, the little girl has complete confidence in the God of Israel. Naaman can be healed by the prophet she's talking about. She's talking about Elisha, who succeeded uh, Elijah. So all the favor, all the power, and all the fame that Naaman has can't help him, but this little girl can. She's pointing him in the right direction. And look at this, this young girl. And, and here's an example for us right now. This young girl has been taken away from her family at an early age, most likely by the very man whose wife she now serves. She's been carried off to another land, put into service for a foreign woman, treated like a slave or a servant, and probably will stay there for the rest of her life. All of her hopes and all of her dreams and everything are gone because she got carried away. All this, and there's no detectable animosity. There's no anger. There's no ill will. As a matter of fact, she's seeking for the welfare of her captor. Isn't that what God says to the exiles when he sends them into Persia? Pray for your community, build your houses, plant your gardens, work for the welfare of those around you. It's what this little girl's doing. And she directs this man, her captor, to the only one who can help him. Her mind, her mind is on God. It's not on her circumstances. And maybe, just, just, just maybe, she's got enough understanding, we know, to say a sovereign God has put me here. It must be for a reason. Maybe this is it. We know that. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So Naaman's clinging to hope here. He can't find any help anywhere. The Syrians have little regard for Israel. But, and, and Naaman is thinking, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of a bunch of dogs. They're, they're, they're next. We're going to go take them. But, but if they can help me, maybe, maybe I just, I need to try. The king of Syria said, verse 5, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, this would be King Joram. You can look him up. It's in 2 Kings. It's also in Chronicles. So Naaman, pleasant, has leprosy, and he looks like anything but pleasant. He, he, he probably had lesions on his face and throughout his body, but they would show up first on his face and head and on his chest. We don't know how advanced it is, but we do know that there's no cure for him. 
And if Naaman progressed along these lines any further, eventually he would be isolated from the population. He'd lose his position, he'd lose his power, he'd lose his authority, he'd lose everything. And now this proud warrior has kings working together on his behalf, trying to help him with this hopeful recovery, all put into motion by a little girl who has faith in God and faith in God's prophet, Elisha. So one of those kings is not so sure about his situation. And we, so we see the king of Israel's dilemma starting in 5b. So he went, Nathan, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. It's quite a charge. Naaman's king, Ben-Hadad, believes that Joram, Israel's king, has authority over Elijah, thinks that he can order Elijah to heal his man. And the king of Aram has no clue how a true prophet works. He doesn't understand any of this. True prophet works only under God's authority. And a true prophet speaks for God. He doesn't speak for the king. He speaks for God. Naaman's king also believes that the king of Israel and the prophet can be swayed, can be impressed by gifts of fine clothing and and gold and silver and bronze. And, And the gifts here are an important element of this story. They're lavish, they're very expensive. When he says that he sent uh, 10 sets of clothing, probably what he sent is enough material, very costly, very luxurious material, to make 10 sets of clothes. And the indication is that Ben-Hadad expects his envoy and his group to be received by a royal assembly. This is going to be a big event. There would be great pomp and circumstance and music and a celebration and everybody would turn out to see these fantastic, fabulous Syrians come into their their town. People would be honored among the Jews. The entire area would turn out and it it would be a spectacle. I mean, kings are talking to each other here. Ben Haddad wants a miracle. Matter of fact, he's demanding it. But he believes that his earthly ways are going to get him that miracle. And he believes that his authority as a king of a very powerful nation can bend God to do his will. It's an amazing moment. The king of Israel immediately recognized what a tough spot he's in. It's going to tell us a lot about where Israel is at this particular point. Verse 7, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. He's trying to start a war. He has to deal with the expectations of Ben-Hadad and Naaman. And if Naaman's not healed, Joram and all of Israel are going to be in a lot of trouble. So that leads us to Elisha's decision. What's he going to do about this? Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, Elisha's not being proud here. He's not trying to brag. Oh yeah, send him to me. I got it under control. 
He knows that the presence of a prophet is evidence of the presence of God. He knows that he's there as a representative of God, as a representative of God's grace. So rather than lamenting his situation like Joram is doing, he sees this. He sees this as an opportunity. He sees it as an opportunity to show some unbelieving people the power and love of God. What an amazing moment. What an amazing man. Today we would call this a gospel opportunity. You see, you see what I'm talking about with the situation that we're in? This is a gospel opportunity. This is an opportunity for the church to stand up and say, this is what the love of Christ looks like. It's an opportunity to reach across aisles and streets and into the hearts of people that are hurting and show them the love of God. Show them the power of repentance and mercy and grace. Elisha's got that. He said, no, 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 king. No, 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 no. Bring them on. God's going to do something amazing here. Trust in God. Don't worry about your circumstances. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. This group pulls into town. There are a lot of people with him. He's got all these gifts, the donkeys loaded up with gold and silver and clothing and all this stuff. And the, the, the people of the town can see him coming. There's a dust cloud out on the horizon. They think this must be it. And so they ride into town and, and the, you know, the horses' hooves are pounding and the, the earth is shaking and everything. And it's the Syrians and they're scary and they're powerful. And oh my gosh, Naaman is with them. You know about him. You know his reputation. He's a warrior. He's a conqueror. What's going to happen at this moment? So they pull into town. It's a giant event. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha, Naaman is standing outside of Elisha's door. And Elijah says, oh, oh, is that Naaman out there? Yeah, yeah. Go, go tell him this. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Simple. No pomp. No glory. Just, just, just tell him to go take a dip in the Jordan. He'll be all right. Well, verse 11, the Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and cure the leper. Nathan was an important man. He commanded respect. And in many cases, he commanded fear. He expected a ceremony. He expected recognition. He wanted to be treated as if this was some sort of monumentally important event. And Elijah has all but ignored him. Tell him to go down to Jordan and dunk himself. I'm having my breakfast. Here's a servant. An aide telling Naaman what to do in front of all of his men and all of these gifts. What kind of nerve does he have? Elisha doesn't just seem to have very much interest in what's going on. Nathan is embarrassed. And he's mad. And furthermore, 
That Jordan is filthy. If if you've seen the Jordan River, once you get south of the Sea of Galilee, it's just a muddy creek most of the times of the year. In the springtime, it swells up. It could be a mile wide. But it's really not much of a river. And it's, it's dirty. Naaman says in verse 12, Are not Abana and Farpar? Both of these rivers are in Syria. They're now called Barada and Tara. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So Naaman's livid. Why would I come this far to bathe in this filthy river? I could have stayed home where the waters are clean. And, and there's all this indignation that he's suffering. This important man, respected warrior, doesn't even get the courtesy of seeing this so-called prophet face to face. But there's a lot more than embarrassment going on here. Naaman wants to be healed of his leprosy. Yes, certainly he wants that. He wants God's man, God's prophet to perform this miracle, but he wants to do it on Naaman's terms. He wants to do it the way Naaman wants to be treated. He wants to dictate what this is going to be like. What Naaman really wants is for this healing to be all about Naaman. Wants to be center stage. Not about God. Not about Elisha. But Naaman. And he's about to lose this incredible blessing because of, because of what? Pride. Self-centeredness. Wow. Once again, we have some minor bit players. They're kind of in the background. They enter the picture. And they offer sage advice. We see this in Naaman's deliverance, starting with verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And, you know, it sounds pretty good to us. I mean, he said, he's supposed to be a prophet, right? I mean, we came all this way. He's supposed to be a prophet. Maybe, maybe you ought to consider doing it. So first, the little girl. And now we have these servants. Seem to be the only ones in the picture, aside from Elisha, giving any rational advice. Notice, though. Notice. Again, here's, here's a lesson for us today. These servants approach Naaman with respect. They approach him with the regard for who he is. Because they know that if they don't respect him, he's not going to listen to them. Matter of fact, he might chop their heads off. They know if they want to be heard at all, they've got to recognize the dignity of the one they approach. Naaman may be prideful, but he's not dumb. He needs the counsel of the prophet, the servants, and the little girl, and he heeds them. Verse 14, watch what happens here. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is an outright miracle. There's no cure for what he has. And the least likely place to get anything that might help him would be in this dirty river. 
After all the pride, all the indignation, all the anger, Naaman humbles himself. He humbles himself and does what Elisha tells him to do. Verse 15. Then he returned, look at this, to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before them and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. So Naaman is not only humbled in his obedience to what God has told him to do, he is transformed. He has been changed. He wants to express his thanks. He's not just trying to pay Elijah. He's trying to show his gratitude. He wants Elijah to accept his gifts that he brought. And the inference is, is that Naaman has been changed and is thankful to God, whom he names. Not just because he's been healed, but because he has been introduced to the one true God. That seems to be foremost in his mind. I know there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And Elijah, Elisha doesn't want the gifts. He wants Naaman to know that he's a prophet of God and that the glory goes to God. So verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives, this is Elisha, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, verse 17, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. The man, this man who spent his life worshiping other gods, worshiping pagan gods, is going to worship the God of Israel from now on. The other gods couldn't heal him. They didn't have the power. They had no way of doing this. Elisha's God can heal him. And because he's experienced the one true God, he has now made the decision that he's going to worship and he wants to take something back. He wants to take something back with him. A reminder that he's been changed. Something that every time he sees it, he's going to remember. There's nothing holy about the dirt. It's just dirt. It doesn't glow. It doesn't move around on its own. It's just dirt. But Naaman wants this dirt so that he can remember what God has done for him. It's a reminder of the grace that he's received. And then he says this, in this matter, verse 18, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon. It's actually another name for Baal. That God keeps popping up, doesn't he? Goes to the house of Rimon to worship here, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So what he's saying is, you know, when I get back, i got to go with the king. I'm the one that takes him into the chamber where he worships. And i got to do this. Uh, but if I have this dirt, I'll really be worshiping your God. There's nothing wrong with what Naaman's doing. He's being pragmatic. Now he's a man of authority. He knows the one true God. He can use that position if he doesn't offend the king to the point where he gets his head cut off. Elisha said to him, go in peace. Which means, it's fine. When Naaman had gone with him a short distance, well, we'll do the rest of that story next week. <laughs> so Naaman's delivered. Not just from leprosy, not just from a skin condition, but from an eternity of torment in hell. 
He's delivered from that. He's been transformed. And his deliverance says as much about his faith as it does about the state of Israel in Elisha's time. They have a king who has more fear than he has faith. He's afraid. God has sent them a prophet to warn them of falling away. Jesus speaks of this. We heard it earlier when Diane read the, the scriptures early in his ministry. As he addresses a group of skeptics in the town he was living in, which was Nazareth. In Luke 4, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. He says, Remember that famine? God sent blessings to somebody that was not Hebrew. And this offends these people. And then he says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And Jesus is saying, look what happens when you fall away from God. Other people get blessed, not because God favors them, but because he wants to get your attention. He sent the prophet there to warn you not to fall into these things, and you did, and this is what happens. These people here in Nazareth got so mad they wanted to kill him. And the great irony here is that as Naaman, a Syrian, is delivered, Israel watches on. Everybody knew what was going on. And they missed the blessing in the same manner, not because of anything God did, but because of their own actions. So there's our four vignettes. Naaman's disease. This proud, noble warrior is disfigured. He's about to become an outcast with no cure in sight. And at this point in his life, everything's about him and his circumstances. That's the king's dilemma. You're watching what's happening here? The, the king of Israel thinks this is all about him. Naaman thinks it's about him. The king thinks it's about him. King of Syria is trying to provoke him. Make him look weak and helpless. Make him start a war he has no hope of winning. Meanwhile, the king of Syria thinks it's all about him. I'll just send this letter. We'll get all this taken care of. I'm the king. Joram doesn't see, the king of Israel doesn't see his situation as an opportunity for God to shine. He's too worried about his own skin. Too self-centered. Startling lack of faith for a leader God's people. We saw Elisha's decision. You don't have to read too much between the lines to see that Elisha wants to make sure that everyone knows it's not about him. It's about God. He's the only one pointing towards God. That's why he doesn't come to the door, not because he's flippant. He decides not to meet Naaman face to face, not being rude. No, Elijah wanted Naaman to know that it wasn't the kings that were ordering this. It's not even him. It was God. God alone. Naaman didn't need his position. He didn't need his influence. He didn't need all that power. He didn't even need Elisha. What he needed, what he needed was God. And we saw Naaman's deliverance. And Naaman discovers that it's all about God, the one true God. 
not the gods he's worshipped all his life, but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has now become his God as well by showing him an act of pure grace. So there's some, there's some practical lessons to hear. I had some help from some of the guys I met this week because I was trying to figure out how all this worked. Thank you, Mark. First practical lessons that we hear is God blesses the humble, not the prideful. Had to be difficult for Naaman to humble himself to go down to this filthy river, do what Elijah told him. But then in that, in that we find out salvation can be messy. It's not always what we think it's going to be. And it doesn't always go the way we think it's going to go. And God doesn't tailor his salvation plan to our desires and our expectations. So it can be messy. Doesn't always appeal to our reason. I mean, think about it. Reason dictated that the Naaman could have just bathed anywhere other than in this dirty creek. But God wasn't concerned with rivers and geography. He was concerned with a humble heart. He was concerned about Naaman's soul. There's a deeper lesson here. We're going to get doctrinal on you for a second. But watch this. Nathan went into the river. Singular event. His healing wasn't finished. He had to dip seven times, right? We can talk about the number seven, but the fact of the matter is that Naaman's cleansing didn't all happen at once. So we see a picture of two foundational doctrines of our church. We're justified. We're proclaimed righteous by an act of God. It's a singular act. It happens one time. Forever. But our sanctification, brothers and sisters, takes time. And takes some cooperation. Doesn't all happen at once. We are saved and sealed by God's justification. And at that point, it's a done deal. Once God declares us righteous, we're as righteous as a human being can be, and we are assured our place in heaven. There's a room for us in those mansions that John talks about. But we spend the rest of our lives working out that salvation, not to maintain it, not to improve upon it, not to become better people. But we're saved and sealed, we're bought and paid for. So we work. The scriptures say that we strive in our sanctification. Now that makes some folks uncomfortable. I shouldn't have to do anything. You know, Naaman's heart was changed so radically that he decided to worship God, not because he had to but because he wanted to. That's us in our sanctification. We're not doing this out of some sense of duty. We're doing it because we love God and he's already said, you know, there's going to be a day when my son comes back and brings you home forever. And we go down on our knees and we go, thank you, Lord. Being human beings, we stand up and sin. And God says, my son's already paid for that. But can you be aware of the fact that you're sinning? 
I've given you my spirit to lead you away from that. Are you willing to, lead, to follow him? So we have justification and sanctification. We strive in our sanctification not to keep it, but to prepare ourselves for eternity. So does God still heal? I mean, that's where we started, right? David, what did you say? Yes, he does. He healed Naaman, didn't he? I mean, this is pretty clear, right? So let's set aside all of the academic arguments and understand that God never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Hebrews 13, 8. But God didn't want to just heal Naaman's body. He can do that. He wanted to heal Naaman's soul. And ultimately, Naaman needed that far more than any physical healing he could ask for. Brothers and sisters, when you come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be healed. You'll be healed of all the sin and all the pain and all the grief that we have here on earth because one day we're going to stand in him and all of those tears are going to be wiped away. We are promised the ultimate healing. Sometimes God heals people miraculously just to remind us of the healing that we have for eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for complicated things like justification and sanctification, but we give you thanks for little pictures of this. Like a man walking into the river and dipping seven times and coming out somehow miraculously, supernaturally clean. Oh, Father, that's a picture of us. We keep dipping in the river, Father, and you keep cleansing us. Oh, we give you thanks. We give you praise for that. We do this in Jesus' name. And Father, as we gather together to share some food downstairs, we pray that you bless our fellowship, bless the hands that have prepared this, in Jesus' name, amen. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.